As we continue worshiping together today, receive these words from the book of Acts, the 11th chapter, beginning with the first verse. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time, the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angels standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. We have a number of, uh, aside from the point, takeaways in this text. One would be, God wants you to take naps and eat snacks. That's the first one. Also, it's okay to eat bacon. That was the other one. Now, those might sound wonderful to you, but they are, in fact, beside the point. This fifth Sunday of Easter season, the authors of Luke-Acts just continue to tell a story of an expanding early church. And in this passage, what we're being treated to is a recounting of the conversion of Cornelius and his household. And Peter's version here, he says, is being given point by point or step by step. And it's offered to the believers at the church in Jerusalem and any story of conversion should be met with an outpouring of celebration. 
for the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. But it isn't in this case. It's not a celebration. It's more of an interrogation. And there is a distinction noted about the communities involved in this case. The distinction noted is the circumcised and the uncircumcised believers. That is, those following laws and rituals, including dietary restrictions, physical observances, and those who do not. The Israelites and the Gentiles within an expanding Christ-follower community. But the interrogation doesn't feel necessary if it was just a matter of, well, did you or did you not do the ritual? Instead, the questions are deeply rooted in long-standing traditions involving the identity of those to whom God comes. Peter's actions in dining with and staying with this Gentile household is real cause for concern for believers whose identity and assurance and to some extent control is tied up in the observances of purity practice. In seeking to be generous to the group, I'm not sure that it can be overstated the significance of Peter's transgression of these norms in this story. And perhaps that's why this one story of this one household takes up a chapter and a half of Acts. Carl Kahn, a professor of religion at Lakeland College, puts it this way. Such purity norms reinforced for Israelites their identity as a people set apart to serve God, to honor God's Torah, and to receive God's deliverance. Purity codes and many, for many Israelites emerged from and reinforced Israelites' understanding of how creation, humanity, and daily life were to be ordered or mapped out. And they reflect essential elements of their worldview that defined their role and place as God's people. Once more, those norms were predictable. They were outlined. They were taught from birth. And they were somewhat manageable. And above that, Peter knew those rules himself. But Peter reports how he argues with a voice in his version telling uh, him to get up, to get up, kill, and eat. And in verse 8, he recounts how three times he pushed back on that voice. No, no, no. Nothing impure has ever entered my mouth. Not only this, but in chapter 10, he even double-checks the people who were sent to fetch him, essentially saying, Y'all know there's rules against this, right? I can't come to your household. But all the same, Peter knows he's not the one in control and has been sent out to bring the good news, either comforted or just spurred along on some level by an answer from heaven saying, go without hesitation and make no distinction between them and us. What God has made clean you must not call profane. But still, and potentially not without good reason, the believers in Jerusalem encountered, I imagine, all manner of unsettled feelings when they first received the story. Anger, betrayal, fear, uncertainty. And based on some of the Greek used in the text, possible reactions included meddlesomeness, 
or seeking an altercation. And I'm not sure I can blame them too much either because frankly, from their view, things were way out of control and possibly perilous for their own well-being. It's almost a little too simple of a story though, kind of the biblical version of that half-hour sitcom. Here are our characters. Here is our problem. Here is our solution, all mapped out and tied up in a bow in just a chapter and a half. But it sounds pretty nice of a good way to get past the entrenchment of us versus them thinking a shortcut would be lovely. And with no shortage of fractional conflict around us these days, I'd be very much appreciative of a quick solution and a movement toward celebration and reconciliation. Sadly, it seems the propensity to leverage religious practice against one another as a justification for conflict or controlling others has not abated much at any point in history. Even now, we're being told that justification for Russia's fratricidal invasion of Ukraine is for the protection of ethnic Russians, but also for the defense and preservation of religious orthodoxy which ascribes no tolerance or acceptance of LGBTQIA persons in a society, specifically noted parades, never mind being welcome in the church. And of course, there are other false justifications and there's many layers to this conflict, but it's nonetheless the leveraging of us versus them thinking to enact violence against those who would otherwise just be your neighbor. Similar ideas to purity and orthodoxy have brought our own denomination to this point of division where rather than invite the stories of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, we've drawn our lines and actively sort ourselves into camps. And some of the simplistic religious justifications have been framed differences related to biblical interpretation. But there is, of course, at play the issues of power and of finance and of control. I've been very aware of my own lack of a generous spirit on that whole matter, but based on repeated histories, I'm sure that we are too not immune from being pitted further against one another, nor are we immune from seeking to leverage similar justifications to enact violence against one another. And indeed, we see it from individuals and groups yesterday in Buffalo, but happening all too frequently. But as we draw more lines around larger camps, and it saddens me. As that happens, I'm trying to invite myself to be aware of my own reactions, of the us and them thinking, and I want to guard against being so walled off that I might miss what spirit does beyond my lines. And we know that there's not just one violent conflict in the world with religious justifications at the fore. We know that it's not just the UMC experiencing separations along ideological lines. We know our fragile political realities in this country are fraught and seemingly deepening with synthetic tribalism and racism drawing and separating the population out into us and them. That's a lot to try and bear. And very little of it do we have control over. Unsettling at best, 
and too often dangerous, but there are forces at work in the world that some feel more than comfortable to leverage for their own gain. Whether the root of that is fear or greed, or whether it's a matter of feeling one's identity tied to specific rules and practices, or if someone feels they must separate out or attack because of their own relationship or favor with God, it depends uh, because they fear their relationship with God depends upon it. This approach of us and them lends itself to destroying peace within, if not peace between. I want to be clear. There are things worth fighting for. There are times it is necessary to separate out for safety of vulnerable communities, spiritual, mental, physical safety. The caution in this is not so that we accept harm or injustice in the world. It's not that we'll never be angry about anything. I think there's a call in here to be pliable with the at times necessary lines drawn so that we don't wall ourselves off so completely or deeply. We forget that God exists beyond those walls too. And not only does God exist beyond whatever us we've fallen into, but spirit does work there as well and can even do it with them. And I hope that they know that about us. Step by step, the passage says in verse 4, Peter explains to the believers in Jerusalem what had taken place. It was necessary because they're very twisted up about it. They criticize him. What were you doing, Peter? You know you're not supposed to do that. It feels like there's some kind of undercurrent of you've put us all at risk, or worse, you've put yourself at risk. We've had this thing all figured out, but now you're breaking the rules. Enter Peter's defense. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, I tried multiple times. Multiple times I tried to refute the voice God sent to me in that vision. I told the Lord all about how I don't eat unclean things. Three times. Three times I told him. All the same, the word came to me. Do not call profane what I have called clean. Peter is accrediting himself. Oh, I know the rules. But then he's also got to find a way to shake this community out of their box because they're about to miss it. This whole interaction is only happening because they already knew what had happened in the household. But we're shown, we are shown that the first reaction is not celebration, it is this trepidation. He pulls them back from the brink, not with a harsh return of chastising, but he points them to the work of the Spirit at the house. What's been called the Gentile Pentecost took place as Spirit was poured out upon Cornelius's house as Spirit had been poured out on others, making no distinction between us and them. Verse 17, if then God gave them the same gift given to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to hinder God? They were silenced. Then they praised God. 
It's not bad, Peter. Pretty good job pulling the group back from the brink by pointing to the work or blaming the Holy Spirit. Whatever, it worked. And it's true, she doesn't really check with anyone, as Pastor Ginger says. Spirit does what Spirit's going to do. There's two things here. First of all, Peter does not tell the whole story step by step. There are a number of details in chapter 10 that are left out of this. You're welcome to read them. But let me say this. The whole thing started when Peter was going to pray. Then he got hungry while trying to pray. Man, then he took a nap. I mean a trance. I'm sorry. He fell into a trance, not a nap, but whatever. Maybe praying and falling asleep because I'm hungry wasn't the message the church needed, but he left that part out. Secondly, I don't, I'm not in love with the English translation in verse 18. They were silenced. It feels, yeah, it's a lot, it's pretty harsh, pretty harsh for the day. And it misses a little something that happened in the space after the talk of the Holy Spirit's work. There are a number of people or groups I would love to silence with a recounting of the work of the Spirit. But there's a little bit more here for us. It's not just not making a noise. The Greek here, heisukadzo, has additional uses, including to cease from altercation, leading a quiet life, a mental condition of awe, and even to refrain from not just speech, but work and that meddlesomeness. It's kind of fun. I think it's fun. But I think my favorite for this round was the French translation I was working with, where when those who were listening heard, they retrouvèrent leur calm. That was a bad calm, but whatever. They found their calm. I really liked that one. I got my calm. There's a place where I keep it. Sometimes I lose it, and Spirit helps me find it again. I like that. I need access to that. Part of that calmness likely comes because there is recognition that their identity, including the important acts and rituals central to the practice of their faith, and their relationship with God is not subsumed or at risk because of what happened with the Gentiles. Instead, there is a reminder that the baptism by water and the Spirit, that we're incorporated into a larger family. Reverend Dr. Cho Hee An puts it this way, the community is a place where believers share, and they share the same whatever we have and they have together. After we share what we have and what they have, we become them. And they become us. Our individual cultures are not erased, but we and they both become one in the sense of living with one another in mutual respect and support. The invitation to life goes further. Thanks be to God. I know the purpose of the story is to show the expanding early church and the ways that the early Christians were figuring out this new life together, balancing a melding of traditions or no traditions at all, and joining 
of a diverse group and many diverse groups into one. Try as I might, I do still read into uh, this story the similar acts of established groups within churches or congregations who see new people arriving and joining and reacting in less than hospitable ways. It does make me wonder about our denomination and the ways that our polity seeks to exclude even those people for whom it is obvious spirit is active and poured out in their life and in their ministry. Yet there we are, trying to hinder God. I've tried to be generous with this group in the text because I want to imagine what it was feeling like to be that out of control in that situation, as if something is being taken away from you because of what someone else has. But I also feel a strong impulse to just say, can't you perceive what's happening here? Do you receive the evidence, the activity of God, the good work and the fruit of the faithful? Get off your privilege, make room on the bench. They should get some credit, though, because at least they questioned what was happening rather than just simply saying over and over, but they're Gentiles, but they're Gentiles. A trusted and relational leadership in Peter helps them along, knowing that they are not in control to discover and not miss the ongoing work of God in the world. Now, it's also unlikely that the author of Luke-Acts intends to offer strategies of spiritual and communal resiliency in these verses, but nonetheless, they are present. And there's a reminder that the church in Jerusalem is part of something larger, that the baptism by water and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit connects them across all manner of lines. They are connected to a larger purpose. They are a community of mutual support and care What they have is shared with others, and what others have is shared with them. That even when things happen beyond their control, spirit-led or just scary or terrifying or sad, they are incorporated into a community that bears with one another through all of those things. In a spiritual sense, Peter reminds them that the work of God in the world continues They are not being replaced. Spirit is doing what Spirit does to draw people into life and the love of Christ. And these are all things that help a community and individuals build resiliency in the face of stress and trauma, a sense of purpose, acts of service, spiritual practice, and relational connections. Part of resiliency for times that are stressful and beyond our control is taking better stock of what is in our control. You will not control the Holy Spirit. Just go ahead and set that one aside. While we can assume the work of the Spirit might be positive, not all situations out of our control are. But we can question them if we're uncertain, if they are harmful or not. We can situate it in a rubric of the fruits of the Spirit to see if it's present? Are the things happening? And are my actions and reactions to them making me more joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, or gentle? Or am I practicing self-control with my reaction? 
There are things in the world you can control, even as the world itself and many events of life and community remain far beyond our grasp. Within our church community, we can exercise some of those healthy things to make us more resilient as we bear with one another. And the term coming back to me over and over this morning is as we face these bags of awfulness, there are spaces for us to be in service for learning and expanding skills for retreat and for rest, and places you can both help care for others and get care for yourself. And the prayer minister team and the care teams are just a couple of those that you hear about every Sunday. You can engage in a larger purpose to share broadly the love of Christ and extend in this place a radical welcome for whomever Spirit brings through the door. In your relationships, I pray that you will continue to build those relationships out with one another and share the work of the Spirit in your life and in those around you. Share news of recovery taking place in small groups. Share news of caring for one another, of visiting the sick, of feeding the hungry. Share in your service to help access housing, to move people from a space with nowhere to lay their head, with their own place to lay their head. Share the good news of the work in your life and that which is happening around you. This is probably the best thing that Peter does in the story to show where Spirit had been at work in wondrous ways, helping that community to find their peace and their praise, a little bit of calm, May we in these days that are difficult find the same.